0: Hello and welcome to the SNC podcast. I am your host, Fala Shade Anousie. Joining me on this episode is Ojama Ochai. She's the managing partner of the Creative Economy Practice at the Co-Creation Hub. She is a transformational leader with over 17 years' experience working across Africa, the Caribbean, and the United Kingdom with organizations including the British Council, UNESCO, the World Bank, the Africa Technology and Creative Group, and various national and regional governments to support the development of the creative economy. Ojama is co-founder of Pixel Ray Studios, a global film and audiovisual content infrastructure development company. She also sits on the board of The Trust, an organization set up by Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey to support Bitcoin development in Africa and around the world. Ojama, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me. How are you doing? Not too bad, thank you for asking.
0: <laughs> was that intro good for you?
1: Yeah, it was... Yeah, as intros go. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you What would you have
0: loved for me to mention? <laughs> it
1: was good. Okay. It
0: was good. So it has been a long time or a long journey getting you here. So thank you so much for making it. I really, really appreciate it. And um, I just want to start off by saying that I believe that there are seeds that are planted in our childhood that lead to, us to become the adults that we become or who we are professionally. So for you, looking at your professional background, what would you say were those seeds, if you can remember, that inspired your passion and interest in the continent's creative and digital industries?
1: Right, so I would say in my journey, there's maybe two seeds. Um, books, it's, it's, I would say is the first seed. I'm lucky that I had the opportunity in childhood to read lots and lots of books, Nigerian authors, uh, prose, drama, poetry, as well as international authors, fiction, nonfiction. So I was really lucky that I had access to books at home in school. And so that's I very young, I could see the power of words, right, and literature, which I was quite introverted as a child. And so it just allowed me escape and have a reason to not talk to anybody because you know everybody knew she's reading don't disturb her so that I would say that was the first seed the second seed um, which again I was quite lucky to have my father is a theatre arts professor so I got exposed to the arts and experiencing performing arts and all kinds of art at quite a young age and so I had an innate appreciation for the value of creativity and writing and and literature. Having said that, it took me a while, right, to come to this career path because I first started out in the sciences, as one does, then did engineering and worked in the tech industry. I worked for a hardware company for a bit and then in a software company, which if if that company existed now, it would be called an ed tech company because they did software for, for children and for schools. But I would say to answer your question, the seeds was just access to, to books and art at an early age and growing an innate appreciation for the value of those things.
0: That's awesome to hear. I love when I hear about books and how it's always, I always say that sometimes it kind of works, maybe like your parents is in that industry or that profession and that inspires you, or maybe it's just you as a child, you have that interest. Now you said you were in the sciences, how did you not make that switch? Because, you know, a lot of Nigerian children go ahead and just pursue what they think that is best according to society and how to make money So the pivot
1: to the artist is quite interesting, actually. Unlike most people in in my generation and in Nigeria, where your parents say you have to do, uh, you have to be a doctor or you have to be an engineer. In fact, my dad wanted me to do English or literature because he, you know, he's a theatre artist and he worked in broadcasting So he saw the value of the arts. My mom wanted me to do law. But I guess in addition to being an introvert, I was a bit of a rebel. And so because they said do those two things, that meant I definitely did not want to do those two things. And so it became a case of, right, so what am I going to do? That's not the thing that they've asked me to do. So my journey into the sciences was never a sort of strategic It wasn't because I wanted to be a doctor or because I wanted to be an engineer. It was just, I think, a rebellious phase. But when I got into the world of work, this was the early 2000s. And if if people are old enough to remember, we had just come from military rule. It was a new democracy. I'd grown up in a military-ruled Nigeria. And for the first time... If you remember like writers that had been in exile, the Walesho Incas and co were coming back. It was around the same time I think that Purple Hibiscus, uh, Chimamanda's book was published. And there was a new interesting generation of writers, Hilo and Habila, there was a bunch of people, um, even music, Nollywood was slowly becoming a thing. And it was by no means mainstream, but working, in close proximity with um, theater artists as I was, and seeing this shift in society, one of the things that started to become obvious to me was that there was a lot of creative talent, but the sort of organizational, more management, project management type engagement I thought was missing. And so around the sort of mid 2000s, I was thinking about doing something else. I wanted to move to Lagos as well. And I was thinking if I wanted to go and work in this sector where it seems like there's something happening but there isn't the skill set that I I thought I had, which was at that point I was doing a lot of project management and program management in in a software company. And so I thought what might project management look like in in an arts context. At the time there weren't that many, there still aren't that many jobs to, to do that. And so I started to vaguely think about going into broadcasting because that was a pathway that I saw to have a job, bring sort of more management, project management type skills, but work in a creative sector. And luckily, while I was looking for that opportunity, one day I bought the Tuesday Guardian because I was looking for work. I wanted to switch careers. And I saw a vacancy for an arts assistant at the British Council which I thought was perfect because here it is, it's an actual job. It's a project management role um, at quite a junior level. And it's in a sector that I want to work in. So I, when I saw the advert, I thought, this is a sign. Surely this was meant to be. And I applied and, and the rest is, is history. So that's how I made the pivot. I did go on and 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 specialize. So I went on and did arts management um, after a few years working and and knowing that, okay, this is the thing that I think I want to do. So I did go in and do arts management. I did a lot of personal research because uh, at that time, this notion of something called the creative industry also started to develop, not so much in Nigeria, um a lot in the UK. And being at the British Council, it did expose me to just understanding what it meant. And it really resonated with me in those early days because I thought... On one hand we have the talent and we have the creativity Um, and on the other hand we have this economic situation where it, it felt a lot more hopeful at the time i think because it was by this time i'm talking now about sort of 2009 it was about 10 years of democracy all our indicators were looking up and so i thought this could be a really powerful economic driver so i started to do a lot of personal research i started to try and understand the policy context and so I did a lot of professional development around just understanding creative economy policy understanding arts management I had I was lucky again I had the opportunity while I was at the British Council to develop new initiatives so I remember in 2009 when we first started to talk about creative industries people would always be like what what is that music they knew film they knew ish you know but then what is this thing that you speak about So 2009, we started a creative industries conference. I remember we did the very first, what it would be called a actual creative industries conference. I'm sure before that time, there'll have been convenings around arts or film or music, but it was a creative industries expo where on one hand we wanted to showcase the sort of product. Like what does, when when you say creative industry, what does that mean to visually represent The sort of goods and services that the creative industries would be, but also have a policy discussion. I remember the first one that we had. um, We had lots of guests from the UK and we had lots of Nigerian guests and speakers as well. And we had a reception, a gala for the very first one. And I remember my country director, after the first at the gala we had given him the program you know his name was David Higgs and David could you show up at this time for this gala and he rocks up and there was a governor the Cross River State governor at the time came for the gala which was a boost because he understood what we were trying to do in terms of creative industries and I remember my country director saying like how did you pull this off and i i find that if, if you're convinced if you're, you have a conviction about some, some about something and you're able to articulate the conviction you can get people to come along on that journey with you so i, I yeah it was a combination of spotting an opportunity recognizing that i had skill sets i could deploy and then get, getting other people, convincing other people to come on that journey.
0: You talked about hope at the time. <laughs> Do you feel... You made it seem like it was so hopeful back then. Do you feel like there's no hope now?
1: Um. By the way, the Cross River State's governor at the time was Liel Imoke. That was his Oh, okay,
0: name. okay, yeah. okay.
1: So I think the hope of 2009 has now been tampered with the reality of just how complex Nigeria is and how... And I think the complexity stems from some things we can't control, like our linguistic diversity, our geographical diversity, our cultural diversity. I think some of the complexities stems from that, and there's not much we can do about the fundamentals of that. Obviously, we can do do with changing our reaction and our our engagement with that diversity. But I think there's also lots of vested interests that have meant that the optimism is now tempered with a tempered with a with a dose of realism that you know we probably need a couple generations right to to build the country that we want to see but also i'm what 20 years older so there's also that that it's not you know call it wisdom call it cynicism as you grow older but i i think it's just the passage of time and just being more realistic about what's possible
0: Yeah, I was telling my boss yesterday that I actually do hate adulthood sometimes because (laughs) (laughs) some choices you don't want to make, you have to make them because you have to think about bills, you have to think about diplomacy, you have to, there's so many things you have to. I I understand where you're coming from. And um, just a quick question you know, you you had talked about when you went into the industry, you were focused on project management, and you knew that that was what you wanted to do. Was there any time that you thought you wanted to? actually pursue that broadcasting that you wanted to do initially or you were just squarely focused on that You because know, sometimes you may, when you get that exposure you're like oh maybe I should actually do this you know so can you just speak quickly about that
1: so in terms of pursuing a creative career that's a really interesting question because in secondary school I was quite a mistress for six years right the secondary school I went to was quite a new one and so my set was the first set so from just one we had like leadership roles. And so I was choir mistress for six years, which obviously implies that I can sing. Well, I could sing, I don't know that I can sing anymore. But I think it also implied some coordination capability because it was also a Catholic school. So the choir was a big thing, right? The choir had to, we did mass at least three times a week. So it was an important thing. Music was an important thing. And then when I was leaving secondary school, I won the best prize for um, drama, the prize for drama, because I used to act, right? And I've done roles from Lazarus to like, (laughs) all kinds of outlandish things. And so one would assume, I would imagine that I would pursue a creative career, but I never saw it as a pathway for me, which I think raises a question of... Again, I was lucky. I think I, I've had access to books and knowledge beyond my sort of immediate context because a lot of people don't... When they think about, about the creative sector, the only pathway they see is the visible pathway, which is that creative pathway. But I think even from that time, in my role as choir mistress, for example... I recognized that it was as much my coordination ability as my singing ability, because when it came down to it in the choir as a voice, I was one of, I don't know, 50 people that are in the choir. So the unique thing, and I don't know how I knew this at 10, but over the sort of six years of secondary school, I knew that being choir mistress, the unique thing wasn't that I could sing. It was that I could coordinate this group of people to show up for rehearsals and be at this place at this time. And so it wasn't about the singing. In the singing, I, was no, I wasn't no—I was the best singer. I, I was one of 50 people that could also sing, right? And so I think knowing that, when I started to think about how might I work in this sector, it didn't occur to me because in my head, people that can sing, I dime a dozen, but there's one choir mistress. And that's a thing that you can do that not many other people can do. All of this is in hindsight. I, I wasn't this strategic. I was so I like, oh my gosh. <laughs> All of this is, is like, in hindsight, I was thinking like, what was it, you know? But I, I guess that reasoning, was there at the time, but when I look back on the choices I've made, it's because I recognized, in this context where I'm working in this creative capacity, the thing that I stand out for is not the creative capacity, it's the coordination capacity. And because I had then gone to work in a different sector and also applied those organizational skills when I started thinking about what to do, it never I'd never thought, oh, I'm going to go back to singing, or I'm going to go back to being an, an actor." Because in my head things are usually pretty tidy, so I guess yeah. Again, I'm lucky to be able to think in that way.
0: No, it's great. It's it's just I love when I meet people who are this way, and then people who are like you know I. I pursued that aspect that I had ignored or put on the back burner and it led me down this path, you know. And a large part of your professional career was, a, was with the British Council. What was that experience like for you and how did you know it was now time for you to move on to a different professional challenge?
1: So I did spend a long time in the British Council, although two things I should mention. I, I was in the British Council for 15 or 16 years, but in that time I did eight or nine different roles. And so in actual fact there was a lot of um change all most of them not all of them were focused on the creative industries except two roles that I did so that's the first point to make but also in the 15 16 years that I worked with the british council i also did lots of other things including professional development so i did a three year fellowship, arts management fellowship in the US where every summer for three years, I would have to go to the Kennedy Center and the University of Maryland and um, do this uh, professional development thing. Um, And then I did a lot of work trying to understand creative economy policy. UNESCO did a lot of training that I participated in. I also did a lot of other sort of advisory consultancy type stuff while I worked in the British Council. So across these two things, seemed like a fairly stable career but it was quite varied still so there was a transition so first of all i i did the arts management role the arts assistant role that i mentioned for a year and then became an arts manager for another couple years and then at the time this idea of diversity and inclusion was a massive agenda for the british council which i also believe in right i believe that people of all shapes and sizes and types deserve a chance. And it was a new thing. We had a new EDI, Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Strategy. And so I applied to lead the EDI efforts for Nigeria, and I must have said something that convinced somebody, but it was a massive bump in terms of a promotion. So I went from being junior management to senior management, I was never mid-management in the British Council. So. It was lots of things I was learning. I think one of the things I'm lucky, and I keep talking about luck, because I really believe that for all of us, time and chance happens, right? You put in the work and then you hope that something happens that gives you a break. But in all of this, I think one of the things that I do have is curiosity on one hand. So I want to understand why are things the way they are on one hand, and how can we fix them? And I have a strong bias for action. I get quite frustrated talking about things, which may be a good or bad thing. But when I went into that EDI role, I was now in the leadership role. I didn't do that for long. I did it for maybe eight months, less than a year. And essentially a new role was created for me to do the EDI as well as keep doing arts, which is what I actually wanted. So the role was transition. I say all of this to say, while it was a stable career, I did do lots of different things. And by the time I got to 2019, just before COVID happened, I had started to think, is this it, you know, are you, we were already talking about my next role at the British Council because, you know, as one does. And I knew, okay, it was going to be a regional role. At, at that time, I was a director for West Africa for the art and creative economy program. And it was quite exciting to take on a new regional role. And we're already talking about that transition. But then COVID happened and we went lockdown and then I had started the role and I wasn't traveling. As COVID was, lockdown, I think everybody started reevaluating their life choices. <laughs> And I thought, is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? Not really. I was turning 40, like, if you don't do it now, when are you going to do it? And so one morning in June of 2021, at this point, I thought, actually, that's it, I'm gonna leave. And so I told my boss, it was a Friday, and he said to me, well, forget we had this conversation. Think about it (laughs) over the weekend. It was a bit of an impulsive decision because I didn't necessarily have a plan. All I knew, there were, there were a few things I knew. One, at that point, I had just completed some research for that was looking at how technology is changing the creative industries around the world. So backtracking a bit, around 2019, when I started to think about what I wanted to do, at the time, streaming obviously had, to, had started to become a thing. YouTube was a thing, people consuming content. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Coming from a tech background, I became curious about how is technology going to change the way that the creative industries function. So I started to do some personal research. And then in 2020, I convinced UNESCO to pay me to do some research of how creative in- industries will be transformed by technology. So I went and did an analysis of 94 countries or so around the world. And essentially the, the findings from the research, one of the key findings was that the value chains of the digital economy, what we call the digital economy, so things like big data, social media, broadband internet, all of those things in that ecosystem are becoming indistinguishable from the value chains of the creative economy. So where does audiovisual content begin and where does Instagram end, for example. So you can't, it's becoming harder and harder to delineate between those two things. So that was one of the conclusions from the research. So when I said I was leaving my job, all I knew was there's an opportunity here for Africa. We talk about all of the barriers to achieving the growth that we want to see in the creative economy, but we don't actually have a mechanism. And there aren't many African organizations driving that agenda of How are we going to apply technology? So when I said I was going to leave, I knew I wanted to do something in that regard. What it actually was, I didn't know. In my head, I'll take a couple months off and figure it out. But once I got the idea, I chatted to a few people and one of the people I told about it was Bosun um, at CC Hub. And CC Hub had been doing tech and application of innovation for 12, 11 years at that point. And he said, oh yeah, well, I think it's brilliant. Let's do it together. And so literally, by the time I negotiated my end date with the British Council, I left the British Council on the 31st of October, 2021. And I started this practice on the 1st of November, um, 2021. And we registered it. We did the strategy and figured it out. We actually started operations in 2022. So that's a rather long-winded answer. No, but no, to, no, To answer your question, I think the thing that drove me was just knowledge and information that came from a curiosity to understand what's next for this sector of ours and then just doing it because I could have talked about it to death but I just thought let's just do it and try it and see
0: Yeah, I think it's also not just about just doing it it's also about connecting the dots as my boss would always say like that ability to be curious and to connect the dots is so critical and can change one's you know trajectory in so many ways now you talked about you know your work as the managing partner at for the creative economy practice yes economy practice exactly at cc hub can you just speak briefly about what that is and how that experience when you left when you left the british council did you feel was was there like any fear because a lot of people feel like when they're leaving something that they've done for such a long time there's that fear, like, oh, what if I? What if it doesn't work out where I'm going to? Uh, but you, see, you're still going to make that decision. But there's just that initial fear of, like, oh my God, I'm leaving what is comfortable or familiar.
1: Was there fear? I, I don't think so. I'm able to dissociate almost and think about how how will what I'm doing be perceived. I don't care how it's perceived. What I think about it, because I want to. Like, I'm, I'm quite analytical, and quite objective, I think, I I would like to think. I knew that everyone else would think, are you crazy? Like, you've just got this great original role. The organization tried really hard to make me stay. Why on earth would you leave? So I knew that from anyone looking from the outside, it would be crazy. But I myself... I didn't think it was crazy. And I, I I did a number of scenarios in my head, like what's the worst that could happen? You'll have to do another job. You have to come back. You One, you can come back to the British Council. They'll probably take you back with your tail between your legs. Or you can just find another job, right? And, and do another job. In fact, the weekend, I mentioned that I told my boss on a Friday that I was leaving. That weekend, somebody messaged me on LinkedIn to say they were headhunting for... director of a global arts and culture fund and I thought oh, okay this is interesting because you know you've just told your boss you're leaving you don't have a plan you're going to figure it out so in a sense I thought okay this is a sign that you're doing the right thing so I went through that process it was a quick recruitment within two weeks they'd made me an offer at a salary that was twice my salary at the British council and they were going to, the role was in the Netherlands, but it was for a global fund. I had an offer and I said, I'll think about it. At this point it was the end of August and they wanted me to start on the first of September. And I remember getting the offer and looking at it and thinking, actually this is not what I want to do because remember I had said technology Uh, Creative Industries, a focus on Africa. There there were just some parameters in my head. And so I said, this is not the thing that I want to do. Again, I knew like everybody else will think you are crazy because what are you doing? (laughs) I wasn't afraid. And I think it came from the clarity of knowing there's an opportunity here. I spent the last, at that point, I spent the last two years researching this thing. There's an opportunity here. And then another thing I should mention is in my last sort of couple of years in the British Council, I started to get really fascinated with this idea of narratives and perception and how Africa is perceived and how Africa is talked about. And as part of that work, I did commission a lot of research in the British Council to understand narrative of Africa in the UK. And like all these things they say about us, about poverty and disease and famine, it cannot change if... African organizations and African people with skills and talent and influence don't do anything to change the narrative but also to change the reality. And so in my head also I wanted to work. I wanted to do an African thing. I didn't want to go and be led by the agendas of anybody else. I wanted to do a thing where I engage globally, but it's from an African perspective and through an African gaze, and pushing a narrative that I'm interested in pushing. That I think is the narrative that our continent should be pushing. Right. So no, I, I was not afraid to answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's yeah. But to the other question about what the creative economy practice does. So, essentially, our our core mission is we're committed to growth of African creative economy. We think the way that the African creative economy will grow is by applying innovation and technology so that we can increase the productivity and the value that can be created and extracted. So our focus is to support growth of African creative economy and support growth of creative expression by Africans through the application of technology and innovation. We do four things. One is research. I've talked about research a lot. I believe that behind every action, even though I have a bias to action, there has to be in my head, at least a conceptual theory, like what's the theory that this is based on? And so one of our pillars is research. So that on one hand, we can deeply understand the problem that we're trying to solve. Africa is not a homogenous thing. The creative industries is quite diverse. So our research is really to understand the different contexts, the different value chains, the different ecosystems so that we're not solving surface problems, right, so that we're deeply understanding in this particular value chain, in this particular geography, what's the context? Who are the key players? What are they already doing? So that we're not going to come and duplicate and be a nuisance. So the research is both to shape our policy, our own approach, but also to influence other people's work. The more information is out there the more informed choices people can make so we do lots of research so a lot of the research we publish and we will publish so we've created something called the vibrancy index creative vibrancy index for africa and the idea is that it's a tool where we have information on every major city in africa and how they support arts culture and creative industries so that people can use it to advocate people can use it to spot gaps where they can invest and so on our second pillar of work is what we call an uh, ecosystem and community development. I personally believe in building a bigger pie, right? I-, I want to extract value, but the bigger the pie is, the more value I can extract. I don't want more. I don't want a bigger part of a small pie. I want a bigger pie that we can all benefit from, including me, right? So with the ecosystem work, it's about how do we find ways to close the fragmentation gaps? How do we find ways to connect the tech ecosystem to the creative ecosystem? If technology will power the growth we want to see, how do we make sure those two sectors are talking to each other? So in our hubs, um, in CC Hub, in Lagos, in, in Nairobi, in Namibia, we offer free workspace to creative people because they're already tech people in those spaces. So if creative people come to those spaces, then they're going to meet each other, right? And the connections that will lead to that intersection will grow. We also are interested in a Pan-African ecosystem. Again, back to that thing about narratives, there are pots of talent everywhere. We will be stronger together. So we do a lot of our programming as Pan-African. Our third pillar is investment readiness. We know that there are opportunities to build capability. I think that there are a lot of people already building creative and artistic capability. Not enough time is going into building business capability, technological capability. Just those those things that help you build a strong business and that will help you attract capital into your business. So we do a lot of incubators, accelerators, book camps, advisory services for creatives that are trying to build out their business models or they're trying to get distribution or they're trying to get funding. And our thesis is that the stronger the business structures are, the more capital we can attract. So that's the work that we do there, is building capability around being better able to attract capital. Then the final pillar is a pillar that we call investment. And under that strand, we do two things. The flow of money is demand and supply. On one hand, there's the creative industries, companies that want money. They need to understand how to be structured and how to do business to attract money. On the other hand, where's the money coming from? And there's a range of sources, whether it's grants or loans or equity, whatever type of financing. If those guys don't understand how to finance the creative industries, you can get them interested, but they'll still not build the right instruments. So we do a lot of investor education and advocacy. So we have a masterclass series, for example, for funders and investors. And the idea is while we build the capability of the businesses that will require capital, we need to also build the capability of the capital providers so that they can create the right types of instruments. And then the final pillar is that we're looking to invest in create tech companies. If we believe that tech and the intersection of tech and creativity is the future of this sector, then I think we need to put our money where our mouth is, right? And so we're looking to do um, mainly equity investments in early stage create tech companies because I think that create tech is, you know, we talk about fintech and edtech and so on, but there's so much opportunity as well for create tech. And so that's a concept that we really want to grow. So that's what we do in a nutshell.
0: That's amazing. That's really, really cool. I have a couple of questions that you just touched on. The Creative Vibrancy Index, can you speak more about that?
1: So the creative, industri- uh, the creative Vibrancy Index for Africa is a tool that we've developed. Essentially, what we did was we wanted to create a tool that will rank cities based on the vibrancy of their arts and culture sectors. Right. We conceptualized this, co-conceptualized this with Africa No Filter, Africa No Filter is a narrative change organization that's supported by a range of other organizations. But essentially what we were thinking was, if you want to change narratives and perceptions, there are a few tools that you can use. One obviously is journalism. Another one is creative industries. Why, why do we think America is so great? If, if you haven't been to America, it's because you've watched a film where you call nine one one and the police are there within a minute, you, like, and so there's so much power that arts and culture has to shape narratives. So for Africa No Filter, it's a bit of a no brainer. If you support arts and culture and support storytellers working in arts and culture, you can crowd in new narratives that really tell a more nuanced picture of what being on the continent or being from the continent is. For us, it's this thesis of you can't solve a problem that you don't understand. So if I say I want to improve infrastructure, for example, for music, I need to first understand what's the infrastructure that's already there and what's the specific infrastructure that we want to to fix. One thing that I always say to people is when somebody people tell me things, I'll ask them, can you just say it in English? Because I don't understand. When you're talking up, up, I can't really comprehend. I need to really grasp what people are talking about. So for me, it was an opportunity to Drill down and say, okay, if we say out infrastructure, what do we mean? And then how can we measure the availability of that in cities? And I really like the idea of cities because again, we t- often talk about countries, but the reality of somebody living in Lagos is totally different to the reality of live of somebody living in Sokoto. So, again, and even within Lagos, the reality in Ico is different from the reality in Ikeja or something, whatever. So there were a number of ingredients that made it really exciting for us. It was like, yes, we'll be contributing to narrative change, which we're interested in, but we'll also be able to capture like actual things that you can grasp. So the index measures things like how many galleries are in the city? How many museums are in the city? How many theaters are in the city? How many festivals are in the city? And then based on that, you rank the cities. And then underneath that is a lot of data. So for the index itself, we only use the numbers to calculate the position of the city, but we also have a database on there. And the vision is that that database for every city in the index, you can literally go and see, this is the list of all the festivals in this city. This is the list of all the theaters. This is the list of all the galleries and and cinemas and so on. It was a really difficult, complex project because we had to gather a lot of primary data. So if you want to know how many cinemas are in in Nigeria, obviously you can do a Google search, but there's also a lot of primary data gathering. So we're really excited about it because we're we're not there yet. We've literally only done a pilot and we have a long-term vision to create this tool where you're looking for the information on the arts ecosystem in any city. And you can go there and get an indication, even if it's not correct to the nth degree, you will get an indication that this is what cinema looks like, this is what theatres or or events look like in in this city. Information asymmetry, i.e. I'll give you an example of information asymmetry. There, There are lots of funding opportunities, right, or training opportunities in this sector. But when you talk to people, they don't know about it. So there's a mismatch between what's available and what people know. Is available. And that's what we're trying to bridge. If we can aggregate the data and create this tool, it can be a starting point for people wanting to do research on those cities.
0: And that's cool. And the cities that, the first one was South Africa?
1: Yes, the top-ranked city. So there were 22 indicators mm-hmm. that we, we looked at across a number of areas. So we looked at cultural infrastructure, we looked at the enabling environment. So the enabling environment was more things that are not uh, creative industry specific, but have an impact on creative industry. So things like internet penetration. Um, We also looked at capacity. So like training programs for creative industries and so on. So on the aggregate across all the 22 indicators, uh, Johannesburg ranked the highest. Um, Cairo uh, was second highest. Lagos was third highest. It was quite interesting because um, when we were ranking, we looked at the infrastructure and the support for arts and culture, but we also looked at consumption of arts and culture. And then we looked at production. So Lagos ranked um, the highest in the indicator that we were calling creative economy, which looks at things like local film production, number of local films produced. Cairo ranked the highest on... Um, Sites and landmarks, which was one of the things. So sites and landmarks like um, historical sites, museums, that kind of thing. And then um, Johannesburg ranked quite high on cultural policy and support from the government for arts and culture. But on aggregate, because Nigeria ranked quite low on things like Lagos, that is, ranked quite low on things like cultural infrastructure, it shot it to, to third place. There were some interesting findings as well. All of this data that we condensed into 22 indicators, essentially there are things that are correlated with other things, right? Um, So freedom of expression is correlated to creative expression. So the more free you are to express yourself, the more creatively you can express yourself. And the more creatively you can express yourself, the more likely that you will have a thriving arts and culture sector. And so we also had to make these, draw these parallels to figure out what are all the things that are correlated with activity in creative industries and try and distill it into this framework. And one of the interesting things we found out was uh, artistic freedom um, obviously being correlated to vibrancy. And so a city city like Accra, um, which didn't rank that high overall on the ranking, was tops on artistic freedom because it has the least amount of censorship, at least from from the data that we've gathered. So it was a really interesting process. And for us, it wasn't so much the ranking at that high level, it was more, what does this tell us about individual cities? And how might activists or, or creative economy people in those cities use this data to say, actually city of Accra, you already have XYZ ingredients if only you added more cultural infrastructure and more support for local filmmaking we could create a much more vibrant uh, creative economy that kind of thing so yeah it's a really interesting mm. and exciting
0: yeah project. and I think what I love the most about it is that it's just a a good reminder that nothing works in isolation. Sometimes you think that creativity is like this on its own, but like you said, there's so many things that are working to make that creativity possible. Um, And you talked about the work that you do at CC Hub, as well as even just the Vibrancy Index you mentioned. For someone who's a creative and who has a business and wants an investor or a funder to support that business, what do they need to, from your experience, what do they need to prove to that person that would increase their chances of getting the money or the, either it's it's an investor or a grant?
1: So from my experience, getting access to capital, there's some principles. Um, I would say number one is clarity. Too often, I talk to people and they don't really even understand the sector that they're trying to work in. They know what they want to do but they don't understand what you were saying about connecting the dots. Like how does this thing sit in a a broader conversation? So the first thing always I'm looking at, whether as a grant funder or as an investor, is does this person understand the thing that they say they're doing? And I would say, I'm making up this statistic, but majority, 60 to 70% don't. They'll say words that anybody can say and then when you try and deeply delve in, it's not built on anything. One, one, one recurring line I used to hear a lot, and still do, a lot of people talk about uh, intellectual property and copyright protection in Nigeria. Many of them talk about it and talk about piracy and illegal copying. Most of them have never tested the system Like, have you ever tried to mediate a copyright infringement? Have you ever tried to litigate? Like, you haven't actually tried. So you're telling me about piracy, but you don't deeply understand, does the system work? To what extent does it work? What are its limitations? You just copy it from a report that somebody has written, and then you say it, and you say that's the problem that you're trying to solve. That's an example. So I think deeply understanding The problem you're trying to solve and the solution is always a winner and that clarity and being able to articulate. Another thing that I think is always a winner, regardless of what type of funding you're looking for, is skills and capacity. You tell me you want to solve a, I don't know, you want to solve a problem of distribution. What experience, what do you know about distribution? Or you tell me you want to build a digital platform. Who who in your team is going to do it? like so there's again often a mismatch between what you say you're going to do you want to build the spotify for africa okay what's your experience with building platforms like you, you see what i mean so i think skills is often a gap between the thing that people say they want to do and the skills that they have to do it and nothing says you have to have all the skills like who are your collaborators if you if you if you know Uh, visual art and you want to build a visual art solution who's your tech partner that's going to co-found this thing with you and and build it and then another thing that's always useful is track record you can't tell me that you're going to be the biggest festival in nigeria you have not even done one festival so i don't even know whether you have the fundamentals of what it takes i don't know if you're in the game you're talking about winning a game and we don't even know if you're in the game So track record is always important. And people often say to me, oh, but when you're young, you don't have track record. And that is true, but that's what you need to figure out. And there's no shortcuts. You're going to have to figure out what can I do to give me the track record. Attaching yourself to projects, finding things to volunteer for. I think another mistake that people make is that they want to start at the top i do a lot of public speaking and young people will say oh but we approach such and such legal firm and then they'll call the biggest legal firm in the country it's like well why on earth they didn't respond of course they didn't respond why would they respond who are you (laughs) and so like even when it's just being realistic about how you build track record and being creative about how you build. And I know there's a certain privilege, for example, to volunteering. If you don't have transport money to go to a place, how are you going to volunteer? There's no magic, unfortunately. You're going to have to figure it out. I know a lot of people that gained their organizational skills, creative skills from church, right? Or the social communities that they belong to start there, right? Um, But you have to hack it. If you don't have track record and um, you've not done it, you, you haven't taken a chance on yourself, why would I? You can't ask me to take a risk that you haven't taken. So that's another thing. If, you've not, if you don't have the track record, you haven't done it before, I don't know that you can do it. You don't know that you can do it. So why would I pay you to do it? And then obviously there's the technicalities around the actual applications. And I would say that the hack, whether you're applying for a grant or investment, whatever type of funding, follow the instructions. People are always looking for, they want to know somebody. And I'm not saying that corruption doesn't exist. Don't get me wrong. We live in Nigeria after all. But the greatest hack that I've seen is just follow the instructions. I see, I've not so, I've sat on so many grant committees, investment committees, committees where 70, 80% are discarded. The, the, the content is not even considered because you just haven't followed the instruction. Maybe they say fill a form, you'll send your CV or you'll send your portfolio, but they say fill a form and like things as basic as that or they'll say the deadline is 12 o'clock on Monday and then you're sending it at 7 p.m. on Tuesday. Nobody's reading the application, but then they're there praying that, but nobody has actually read it because you haven't followed the instruction. So I think also that's a hack. It's just follow the instruction. So yeah.
0: yeah. Those are fantastic. Those are super. I applied for uh, a grant recently and literally all that you said, it's just, you know, thanks. So thank you for sharing that. I think that the point about following instructions, it definitely is, there is something about our educational system that is unfortunately lacking that we just can't, I don't know, God help us. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And just kind of quickly as we begin to wrap it up is that a lot of the things that you have worked on are reports. And for people who are in the creative industry who read these reports, sometimes they come up they come across this term creative industry mapping. And for some people they're like, what the hell does that even mean? And for some people like, why is this important? So if you could just speak briefly about why creative industries mapping is important.
1: So creative industry mapping as a term originated in the UK in the early two thousands. And it's credited as being a catalyst for a lot of the growth that we're seeing in the contemporary, like what we're now calling the creative industries in the UK and, and globally. And essentially what had happened was a guy called Chris Smith. He was the secretary of DS- DCMS. DCMS is the Department of Culture, Media and Sports in the UK. And he had this idea that there was a lot of activity in, the, in, in these sectors like music or film that are unreported because they're not visible. And his thesis was, as I understand it, if I can understand what's happening where, who's doing what where, and how they're contributing to the economy, I can make a case for more support. And so he did the very first creative industries mapping, which is just literally one, what are the sectors that we will capture under this broad umbrella term? Who are the people that are working in those sectors? What are they doing? Are they clustered anywhere? Is there a pattern to, to what they're doing? In the way that when you look at a map, you know that Lagos is there or showing is here and you 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 then take it a step further and try and understand the, the texture of what's happening in all of those places. That's simply what it is, yeah. is trying to understand who's doing what where in the creative industries and then lay on top of that, how are they contributing, what issues do they have and how can I contribute to those issues? And the reason why that's particularly important in in our sector is because majority of the businesses are micro, and so they're not always highly visible. So for example, if you were doing a mapping, I, I don't know that anybody talks about a mapping of oil and gas, because if there's a refinery somewhere, you know that around that refinery, there's a lot of secondary activity that happens. So it's clear and it's visible or if there's a farm or a factory it's clear and it's visible whereas there can be a music producer in this house there can be a graphic designer in the next house so the sector because one is so diverse and two is all these micro businesses it's hard to grasp it and say this is what it actually represents and so that's what a mapping tries to do is to put form and evidence behind something that exists but can seem quite amorphous and nebulous.
0: Thank you so much for explaining that. It kind of goes back to your point about how, when you look to get into the creative industry, it's not always about the front facing jobs. Sometimes that mapping lets you see, oh, this is an area that is still developing or that's about to develop. How can I lean into that industry or like, you know, explore that industry? So um, thank you for sharing that. Now, as we wrap it up, you have this um, company called Pixel Ray. Could you speak more about that and what you intend to achieve with the company?
1: We talk a lot about narratives and stories of Africa. And one of the things that increasingly came to mind over time was we can't just be the story, right? So I often joke, you know, it's great to be a filmmaker and have my film on, insert name of popular streamer here, right? It wouldn't, It's nice, but I'd rather own the streamer. It's nice to have a contract with big studio in in certain name of country, I'd rather own the studio. That's, there's nothing wrong, there, there's no studio if there's no filmmaker, right? But I feel like if we don't own the means of production, in economics, the, the means of production, the land, the labor, and the capital, people that own the means of production are the most influential in terms of the outcomes. So for us, that's the thesis is, It's not enough that our stories need to be told. We also need to own the land, the labour and the capital through which those stories are told. And one of the biggest, largest scales of infrastructure in terms of film and content development is um, sound stages. With COVID and the just explosion of streaming, globally there's a shortage of sound stages where like studios where films and content are short are booked out years in advance because people are making series. They're making um, content for streamers and so on. And we thought this is an opportunity for us to build infrastructure that means um, African ownership of that infrastructure but then influences the type of stories and the perspective from which those stories are coming. So that's the thinking behind XORE.
0: What has that journey been like for you thus far?
1: It's still early days. We're looking to develop sound stages in Ghana, which that's public information. And so we're developing sound stage projects in Ghana. And then we're also developing sound stage projects in the Caribbean as well which maybe is less public information but it's also something that we're working on
0: okay that's cool looking forward to all of that amazing stuff and what about your work as a board member of unbeat on trust yeah so
1: B trust essentially is um so all of these things in my head are connected right because if if ecosystems don't work you can't ex- ex- you can't um create value and you can't extract value so i i started to think a lot about payments and how money moves and how the world of work is changing. It's really difficult if you're a freelancer, or even if you're if you're a musician, just getting paid in in Nigeria. Like literally, I don't mean conceptually. Like for somebody that's sat in America to send you money physically can be really challenging, or necessarily so.
0: Even for you to pay for services. Oh, exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, and in the last few years, <laughs> he Christian who shall not be named really showed us Pepe. So. <laughs> We I started thinking a lot about what does a democratized payments world look like on the internet and Bitcoin represents that. So again, from a research and trying to understand perspective, I got really curious on how might we support the development of projects and products and services that enable seamless global transactions. Obviously, my interest is the creative industries. And that's how I got involved with um, Bitcoin. So Bit- be Trust is this organization that's supporting developers. So we essentially support developers to to develop open source projects. Open source because we believe it should be a public good and open source projects that other people can then build on to develop payment solutions or solutions for, for licensing of music or like all of the things that we say blockchain can do. I think Bitcoin is the only blockchain worth engaging with and i feel like we need to develop the capability to be able to engage with it and see what it can do for payments for copyrights all the things we think that blockchain can do so be trust we essentially give developers grants to work on open source projects
0: well what has that journey been like for you just being able to educate because i know that part of the part of what you do is also education so how has that process been like because i feel like sometimes in this part of the world it seems like something to get the adoption is slower than elsewhere how do you go around addressing those maybe pushback that sometimes you may see
1: interestingly i don't th- i think if anything bitcoin adoption has been much faster in africa because there are clear use cases there are a lot of people that are speculating in terms of, of crypto more generally and and i believe um I don't know if we're allowed to say that word on this podcast, but there's Bitcoin and then there's shit coins. Everything <laughs> else, that's can. not Bitcoin, is a shit coin. Um, <laughs> the bias is <are> sleeping through. <laughs> <laughs> and together, Bitcoin plus shit coin is the whole crypto world, right? And I feel like there's a lot of crypto speculation. So people will buy it to sell it. But a lot of people actually don't know that most people, I would dare say, maybe not most, but a significant chunk of people that use crypto are using it for genuine case studies or use cases of just trying to buy something in another country and not being able to buy it, but if you use crypto or Bitcoin or a Bitcoin-powered, sometimes you don't engage. I will not call the brand names, but their 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 apps where they'll tell you send money internationally in one minute. You don't engage with the Bitcoin or the stable coin that's at the back of it but it's a crypto transaction that's powering and enabling it to happen at the cost that it happens. And so I would say that adoption is actually quite high. I think what we don't have is the technical capability. So we're adopting things that have been built elsewhere And really in 2023, we can't be crying African narrative and then we're waiting for other people to build it and then we'll go and use it. So what we've really been focused on is really building the technical capability. So we support different efforts that are looking to build the technical capability that will mean more African developers working on on Bitcoin. It has been a bit slow, but we anticipate that in the next few months it will um, accelerate dramatically
0: yeah looking forward to that it's just great to see the progress that's happening slow as it may be and but maybe hopeful as you said in the
1: beginning i think you have to be hopeful if you yeah. if you work in if, first of all if you live in nigeria you have to be an optimist because especially if you have a choice about where to live you can only live here because you're optimistic about the future so, yeah, still hopeful. Yeah, still, still hopeful. hopeful.
0: <laughs> All right. So you you will not be in Nigeria very soon because you have an upcoming residency at the Rockefeller Bellagio Center?
1: Yes, I do. Yes.
0: So talk about um, that. Because when, when I reached out to interview you, I thought that was so striking. I thought that was super interesting to for you to share more on the podcast.
1: So essentially, the fellowship is um, it's this opportunity that Rockefeller gives to academics, thinkers, entrepreneurs, to reflect on problems that they're trying to solve or, or things that they want to change in society. And so the fellowship is essentially space and time in this amazing Bellagio Center on Lake Como in Italy, where you spend a few weeks there, just reflecting on the problem and figuring out a way to solve it, essentially. It sounds pretty wild, but that's all it is. You get um, space to live there and work there and then interact with other people that are thinking about similar things that you're thinking about. So the thing that I will be reflecting on while I'm there is emerging technologies and the creative industry. So I feel like with the, that's what we're doing in the creative economy practice, where we've established the practice and I'm now at a point where it's over a year, it's getting to 18 months, what next? What could we be doing that we're, we're not doing? And thinking more deeply about it, which it's so easy to not think about it when I'm you know in Lagos and moving about and yeah. So that's, that's all it is. So I'm going to be thinking about AI and what implication it will have on creative economy policy and practice in Africa. And a little bit about blockchain as well, what implications for policy and practice.
0: Yeah, when I saw that, because I, I, I looked it up and I was like, it's, this is it's super important because sometimes the business of life just prevents you from thinking about the next big thing, you know? Um, so good luck with everything and enjoy the time. Just reflect and think. It's super important. All right, f- let's go on to the fun random questions. Are you ready? Okay. <laughs> thank you. You know, thank you for just saying okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, first question is, what is one language that you'd love to learn? Igbo. Oh, uh-huh. I'm half Igbo and I'm really not have the incentive to learn it
1: because <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> I feel I, I like it's, it's so it's, hard it's such a beautiful language and so expressive like I don't understand it but when they're speaking it's just so dramatic it's like oh god I know, I wish I knew what they were saying oh
0: my gosh I I, I took Igbo in secondary school and it was it was such a struggle for me so oh
1: I, I did as well for Junior high, I did Igbo I, I, I remember an article on <laughs> the day I will never forget <laughs> and that's the extent that, uh, of Igbo that I know
0: you don't know but you know Bia yeah okay. you know, I'm no, no, you like, know?
1: Basic. Everybody knows those <laughs> okay. ones. but yeah if i had to learn a language i would learn ebook
0: cool cool second question is what was the
1: last book you read oh gosh so i'm rereading i went to an event on at the weekend and they gave me a book atomic habits so i'm rereading it yeah
0: i keep on reading and then stopping so it's a great book so third question is two things that people do not know about you
1: two things that people do i said them already i was a choir mistress in school and i'm a bit of an introvert people don't know that because i'm i speak a lot in public and i'm just out there and about but i actually i could be a hermit yeah so, so i you're... really enjoyed the lockdown actually
0: <laughs> yeah so you're an extroverted introvert
1: yeah ambivert i think they call
0: uh, okay it. Yeah. cool fourth question is last song or album that you listen to
1: my son i've got a nine-year-old son he loves 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 aria stars stability and so every time I'm in the car with him, that's all we listen to. So when I go into the car to get here, well, my phone—he listens to it on my phone synced to the speaker. So when made I go into the car, that was the song that Dambi. was playing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's uh, that's really awesome. Final question is: choose one of the following countries to live for the rest of your life: Gambia, Nigeria, or Jamaica.
1: Nigeria. For the rest of my life, I, if the, I would choose Nigeria. I, love- I like it here, despite all the difficulty. I like it here. When somebody said to me a short while ago, and I thought it was so profound, and he said the best thing about Nigeria is that anything can happen in Nigeria. But the worst thing about Nigeria... It's also that anything can happen in Nigeria. And weirdly, that's what I think I love about it. There's endless possibility in spite of how difficult it is. Yeah, it's
0: a double-edged sword. Absolutely. But I love a, I love a patriotic guest.
1: <laughs> what it's can great. I say? Yeah, it's great, it's great, it's great. <laughs> now, any
0: closing words, Otama, before we wrap it up?
1: Just to inspire people that are listening is there's a lot of opportunity in the creative industries. They're not always obvious. You don't have to be a, an artist, a, musician or a dancer or a singer to work in this industry. And I feel like more people that are not dancers or singers or actors need to work in the creative industries because there's so much opportunity. We haven't even scratched the surface.
0: Great. And your social media handles for people who want to keep up with the work that you are doing?
1: Oh, Jamal Chai on Twitter and LinkedIn. Okay, not Insta? No, my Instagram is locked.
0: Quickly, what led to that decision? Why?
1: Um, I don't know. I feel like Instagram... It's just more personal, and I've mentioned before that I'm a bit of an introvert. I don't want to be posting pictures of myself for everybody to be looking at, you know. So Instagram is where I keep up with family and friends. No,
0: I you know I get it because my mine used to be a private before, and then someone told me um, that. Clearly, you're crazy with what you do. Like you want it to be private. Like how's that going to work? So I share that sentiment. I totally understand it. I totally. But thank you so much, Ojama, for your time here. And as always, thank you to all our amazing listeners for the support. And don't forget to check out the podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us at the SNC Podcast. And of course, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm not like Ojama. I'm public. <laughs> <laughs> I am at non Nonconform. Thanks so much. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode please take a few minutes to rate us on your preferred podcast platform it helps us get discovered by more people thank you so much in advance this episode is produced and edited by Fola Shade Anousier. theme song is by John Akinola you can check out the podcast on Instagram Facebook and Twitter at Podcast. thank you so much for listening